Andrew Ross studied acting at NIDA in 1984. He returned as head of music in 2010. Prior to his appointment, Andrew worked as a musical director, singing coach, pianist, actor and writer. He's performed and musically directed productions for most of Australia's state theatre companies and commercial producers. On productions that have included Miss Saigon, The Venetian Twins, Mary Bryant, The End of the Rainbow, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Masterclass and The Wolf Review. Baz Luhrmann entrusted Andrew with the coaching of the singing on his film Moulin Rouge, a position that has led to frequent collaborations with Nicole Kidman. He has accompanied many artists in Australia and New York, including Caroline O'Connor, Geraldine Turner, Hugh Jackman, Judy Kennelly, Simon Burke and Tony Lamond. Andrew has had a long association with Barry Humphreys, in roles including musical director and accompanist for the Australian shows Look At Me When I'm Talking To You, Remember You're Out, Back With a Vengeance and Back To My Roots, as well as for the Broadway season of Dame Edna, The Royal Tour, which won a Tony Award. This year, he joins Barry Humphreys once again to collaborate on a new outing for the housewife superstar, Dame Edna, My Gorgeous Life. After a brief retirement, Edna returns to the stage to celebrate all that is uniquely Australian and to offer her unique and caring insight. Andrew Ross will be supporting the Dame as co-author, accompanist, musical director and director. In this episode of Stages, Andrew offers great insight into a varied and eventful career in the arts. He is truly one of the industry's nice guys. You, you, you come across as um, more knowledgeable than you really are, I've found. Uh, no, I'm, I'm really very knowledgeable. Oh, knowledgeable. Okay. I know a lot about you now. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Um, that's the best thing, I think, when sort of teeing up an interview. You've got to do your research. How close would you like me? Would you like me there or here? Wherever you are. I think it's pretty good, actually, it that, that it picks up. It's so a ruder. You can come in. Sorry? It's a ruder. A rodenti. A rodent. Yes, I of suddenly realised. I hadn't thought of that. It's a very good microphone. Mm. Have you come across mm-hmm. your road as a... They're very good. Mm. Very, very good. Very, very good. Um, do you do finger work? I mean, I know you do finger work on the keyboard, but finger work. <laughs> some, some people Please that explain. I'm talking to, on the t- they start to bang their, they love to, oh. and it picks it up sometimes. Oh, does it? No, I'll keep my fingers to myself. All right. If that's all right. Yes, no, that would be very, very <laughs> probably preferable, <laughs> uh, which would be good. very, very good. Um, thank you for coming to the Wyndham Street Studios and it's having this conversation. It is very luxurious here. Um Meeting you a long time ago, um, the Voyage of Mary Bride at the Ensemble. Mm-hmm. That was our first time together. Yeah, an Australian musical. Yes. Have you written, worked on many new Australian musicals? I've done a few. Um, I worked on Darlinghurst Nights um, at the Sydney Theatre Company. Uh, uh, Venetian Twins I was musical director for, the one with the revival with Jonathan Biggins and Genevieve Lemon and Drew Forsyth and that Terry a, that, Bader. That's one of the funniest nights I've had in the theatre. Oh, good, yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was a fun show to work on. Great cast. Yeah. Um, Mary Bryant. It's probably it, really, yeah. as far as Australian musicals. There are some terrific offerings about, aren't there, of, of the Australian canon? There are. Uh, the, the problem that seems to occur is that Australian musicals are really given one outing. Um, they're either deemed a success or a failure based on that one outing and um, it's very hard to to get uh, a return visit. I mean things like Miracle City and those sorts of things have had return visits but there's a it's a long time between drinks. It sort of takes the momentum out of 
the developmental process, I think. It's one of those things that we, we don't tend to have. I, to be honest, it's one of those problems I have with Austra the Australian musical as, a, as a, an idea, as a concept, is that um, people always try to assume that we need to do a musical like a Broadway musical, that sort of thing. And I think we're... Rather we're, inventing our own form. Well, yes, because if you go to New York or London, if you go to, Bro you go to a Broadway show or a West End show, because that's what you do. But we don't have the tourists, the amount of tourists that come... People don't come to Australia to go to the theatre. People, mm. You don't go through Australia to go anywhere else. So they don't go to the theatre when they come here. So we can't be assuming that big musicals and the costs that are involved in that are going to uh, sustain themselves, um, which is, I think, evidenced most profoundly by the producers, you know, when it, it opened and closed in Melbourne and never went anywhere else. Because in Adam's family, there's been a variety of those sort of musicals that, that yeah, they might be... Yet they had long runs on Broadway and in the West End. Absolutely. Mm. But they don't work here because no. we don't have the audience to support them. No. And neither do we have necessarily the audiences to support that style of Broadway mu uh, of musical. And I think we have to be a little more canny in the future about what sort of musicals we develop and what we want to say in them, both ma the material involved, but also the, the style. Uh, look, to be honest, uh, going looking at Broadway musicals now, they're starting to head back a little bit. Anyway, things like Hades Town, which I saw just recently, it's a fantastic show, and it doesn't. It's done in a Broadway style, but it doesn't need to be done in a Broadway style. But a lot of the other bigger musicals require a certain level of um, production, and I think for our homegrown musicals, I think we need to really i think the, the creative people in the industry who are in charge of those sort of decisions about what gets put on need to think more carefully about what the style and what form we could produce ourselves that is different you're quite our tourists tend to go to the opera house to see theater but they go to see the opera house don't they they don't, they don't particularly care what they're going to see no absolutely they're just sitting in that venue yeah um, the, the big successes we've had as Australian musicals are, you think of Boy, Boy From Oz, Priscilla, but they're jukebox, jukebox musicals. Yes. Uh, which leads me to, look, we've got some great training organisations in the country for performers of musical theatre. Yep. But, but what about the writers? Do you think we could develop more? Mm, I, could, I could get myself in trouble here. Uh, I work at NIDA as the head of music there, um, and there is a musical version of Starstruck, Yes. about to go on there, which I'm not really a part of because I won't be in the building. I'll be away on tour with another show. But um, it is, uh, by and large, a, another jukebox musical, which I had expressed reservations about um, whether we should be involved in that sort of thing because my feeling is we should be, if as a national training institute, if we're going to engage in that sort of thing, we should be engaging and commissioning writers uh, to write new music. I, I, I'm not a fan of jukebox musicals, generally speaking. I think there is obviously a place for them, <laughs> uh, judging by the amount of people that go and see them. Um, but I think it's a bit of an easy, uh, easy task to put one together, I have to say, because what it does is it dilutes, I think, the, the, the possibilities with the scripting. And make and dumbs them down a bit because yeah. everything's sort of designed to head from one song, from song to song, and make them and how fit do we, into how the story. How do we do that? Yes. Well, yes. Yeah, so the the scenes. How I mean, clever can we be? I mean, things like beautiful, which I saw, and I really was shocked. I have to say about how clumsy the the ins and outs from songs were. 
because it really was, you know, people discussing, oh, how did they get to have a number one song when we've got a song like, and then <laughs> break into this, you know, and I, it's just so lazy. Yeah, that's the thing that annoys me. I, I, the dumbing down of, and I think it's a response to reality television in a way as well. There's yeah. all the dumbing down of what an audience audience expects from a show. Well, that traditional musical journey is, you know, a, a character can talk so much, and when they can't express themselves anymore, mm -hmm. they launch into song. Yeah, and when that doesn't suffice, they launch into dance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when you've got a jukebox musical and you're, you're sewing all those pieces together like a patch, patchwork quilt. Also, you're you're under an obligation. In a way, you know, it's you know, in the old days, you know, people people would suddenly in the fifties or sixties, and they'd get the the LP of My Fair Lady from London, and suddenly they would get to know that, and they'd be waiting to see what this new new musical was like. Now, people just expect it to sound identical to what they've heard. Yeah. So there is no there are no surprises when they go to the theatre anymore, in a musical. Um, so the, the, in a way, there's no real reason to do them. To be honest, you may as well just sit at home and, and listen to the soundtrack. Yeah, and I was shocked—not shocked. I really enjoyed Dear Evan Hansen when I saw it on Broadway, but the fact that they've solved part of that by by having the virtual community, yeah. um, you know, which is a, a recorded choir basically. So there's only seven or eight actors in the in the piece, but they can get those big vocal numbers by using. And you know the the show is about that community, about the virtual community, about the the web and and its effects and influences. So I get how it makes sense. It's also another cheap way to. Well, it's show business, isn't it? So you have yeah, to, have uh, to admire the producers and for being so creative and yeah. the creators for. I'm solving that I have problem. to say, I'm surprised that the musicians are. Um, or oh, the union. The union allowed yeah. it. Yeah. I have to say because w when I was working on Broadway with Barry Humphreys, that they were. And I was using a, a synthesizer. They were on me Up about, out. you know, they were they were worried because we didn't have a full band. Right. So the fact that they've been watered down that much, where that got through. Did you have to put in extra musicians? No, we convinced through. Them. Yeah, I spoke. A different type of show. Yeah. Different type of show. Look, you always speak nicely, Mr. Ross, <laughs> and, and and get all sorts of things. Um, you talk about My Fair Lady. Uh, what was the first? cast recording that you had or LP? Oh, goodness me. Uh, look, it was probably my first show that I was in at, for Canberra, the Canberra Philharmonic Society was when I was 10 and I played Winthrop in um, The, the Music, Music Man. Man. So it probably would have been that, I should imagine. I can't quite remember. Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, not Louisiana, Paris, France, New York, Rome. See, you still got the lisp. Yes. What do you have to? Thifter, thifter. Thifter, thifter. <laughs> My favourite line. I was wonderful. I'm sure you were. Mm. Um, so you got. So I think I think that probably would have been the first one. But I, yeah, I, as I got a little bit older and started to buy records, um, I got to say, Hello Dolly was one of the first ones. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Funny Girl and Hello Dolly. Same. Yeah. 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 <laughs> What does, that, what does that, that tell say? you? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and superstar. Yeah, actually. of course. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think the Australian, the, because there were so many copies of that Australian recording in um, two dollar bins and second hand shops. Right. Which of course. Well, I did a production of again when I was about seventeen. I did a production of Superstar with Terry O'Connell directing it for the Canberra Combined Theatre, um, and so I think that was. That would have been close to the, one of my first as well. 
You've mentioned our nation's capital a couple of times. I mm. assume you grew up in Canberra. Yeah, I, I, I was born in Townsville in Queensland. Um, my father was a, a Methodist minister, believe it or not. I'm such Son a heathen of a preacher now. man. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so we moved around a lot. But uh, we moved to Gympie right. near Brisbane um, when I was very young. And then I moved to Canberra when I was nine. Lived there for 10 years. Um, so was that where your artistic um, proclivities started to, to show there by joining yeah. the local yeah, theatre look, company? I, yes. And I'd also, I mean, I, I sort of fancied myself as a bit of a playwright. I remember coming home from school most days and convincing my mother that she needed to document yet another one of the plays that had popped into my head. And then she very kindly and without Mother, much, take a letter. Yes. Well, in <laughs> fact, because, because she, the, the, she was the church organist as well. Right. And because we had the, um, uh, the church offices, she would then go over and I would dictate to her while she was typing on the church typewriter and then onto a stencil and then putting it in the Ronio machine and printing off copies that I could take to school the next day. So they could then bully other children into taking part in the plays that I'd written. That's brilliant. Do you still have copies of those? No, none. No. Oh. Don't know what became of them. They would have been brilliant. Had the, I'm Somebody sure found them and they were sort of making <laughs> mozza on Broadway. <laughs> I don't think so. But yeah, that, that, I was always involved in writing plays. I'd always, I started as a musician, as like playing by ear when I was about piano by ear when I was about three. I was one of those horrible children that my brothers and sisters were also learning piano or flute, but they were all older than me, or guitar. And I remember my mother used to say that I'd lie in bed, get in bed with her, them in the morning when I was probably two. And every time one of, the, if one of the, my brothers or sisters was practicing the piano and they hit a wrong note, I'd, I'd, I'd react physically. And I could tell when they'd hit a wrong note. Um, and then I started picking up tunes by ear when I was about three and a half or something by listening to the radio and starting to pick So do you think that, that that skill can be in someone's DNA? Yeah, I think that, so. My so mum wanted to be a, a concert pianist, really, I think. Um, but she married a preacher man, so right. she, that, that sort of all stopped. But she, she spent her life, uh, you know, running the choir and playing the organ in church, so she was very musically involved in her life all the way through right to the end. Um, was Dad musical? He says he wasn't, but he he really was. He uh, he, he would have to, to lead the congregation hymns, I guess. I tell, uh, one of my favourite stories about my father, who died. My mother and father both died within a few months of each other a few years ago, after being together till they were ninety, from the age wow. of fifteen. Wow. And um, when we'd go on holidays in the car, um, Dad would sit there driving along the highway. And when the he'd read the number plate of the car in front, and he would sing the the last three numbers, he would sing that number hymn from the Methodist hymn book. He knew them all and what number they were. Wow, that's a, and that, also what that's a what alternate lyrics you could use with what tune. He could go and mastermind. He would. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd suggested that. To yes, him. he would have made a, made a monster. <laughs> uh, so siblings, how many brothers and sisters? Two brothers, two sisters. Right. Um, I'm the, the second youngest. Right. And uh, they all end up in various things, not not in... I always think, I have to say, my, my parents and my family love them as I do. I don't think ever quite understood where I came from or what it is I do. I remember um, even, would have been about 10 years ago, I was on tour again with Barry Humphreys and we were in the dressing... Mum and Dad came to see the show. They came to the dressing room afterwards, as they always did, and they knew, got to know Barry quite well, but... Mum would come into the dressing room and still look at my clothes and go, so do you have to arrive early to, to iron your shirts? 
So I, they never quite understood how, how it all worked. worked. Yeah, yeah. They never understood that there were people who do that for me. I don't have to come in and iron my shirt before I go on stage. So I never. I, I still get the feeling that they never quite got it. Yeah. It's another world, really. It's, it's very different from being a Methodist minister, I can tell you that Absolutely, much. to any occupation. Mm. Yeah. What was your music education like at school? You obviously I, picked up the piano at some point. Yeah, yeah. I started learning piano when I was about five, five and a half, I suppose. Um, and I did a lot of my classical training all the way through that. I, generally in life, I, at school, I was particularly lazy. You know, I was one of, I'm one of those. You've probably got right. the same school reports I've got. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which say Class clown? things like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Andrew would yeah. do very well to um, concentrate more on his own work and stop entertaining a select group of friends. <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> Closely followed by Andrew was a very talented potter for his age. Oh, mm. potter. I mean, I'd like to go back to it one day. My phys ed teacher, I remember, um, I excelled at um, fencing. Really? Yes, I remember him telling what my age dad, you? very proud. I, I couldn't catch, I couldn't kick, I couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. But fencing, uh, year nine, we did a fencing unit. Right. And it was only because I was pretending to be Errol Flynn or something that I'd seen on the movies. See, that's a really interesting thing. This is this is a bit of a jump because yep. now I'm teaching at NIDA and I spend a lot of my work, my work working with actors on singing. Um, particularly in, th- in things like when I did, I was the singing coach on Moulin Rouge on the film, and working with all of those actors, particularly with Nicole and Ewan. And, um, often you have to, I, th- I love working with actors for this reason, rather than singers in a lot of ways, because you can speak in a concept. If I'm going to work with a, an actor on a film or a, a TV or a stage show or whatever, and they're not used to singing, I, get, I don't have time to teach them technique. No. So I need to say, you know, if they have to be an opera singer, they're not, I can't teach them to be an opera singer. So I say, well, what? just pretend to be an opera singer. Just you know, do the, the, the worst cod version of, a, of an opera singer you can be. And they do it, and I go, okay, so you've now just created a lot of the structures, naturally, that an opera singer would use. So now we just start to just craft from that. imagination. From imagination. Yeah. And the same thing with you, with fencing. Yeah. You, know, you pretend to be Errol Flynn, and suddenly You're all of the influence that you've had... Actually quite competent. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you've, lo- you've watched... Great singers. I mean, it's one of those things that my first session with Nicole Kidman, uh, Nick, Nicole, Nick and I knew each other anyway, but when I went on to work on the film, my first session with her, I said, what are you scared of? And she said, I'm scared that I, I'm not a trained singer. And I said, okay, well, let's pull that apart a bit. I said, who did you grow up listening to? Well, you know, what did your parents listen to? And she said, well, Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra. I said, well, they're two pretty good teachers. Um, and who did you listen to at school? Oh, you know, what did you like to sing when you were at school? And she said, I loved Olivia Newton-John in Greece. And I said, well, there's another, another influence, a very different type of influence, but another good teacher. I said, so all of us have these influences throughout our lives, and we've absorbed parts of their techniques. Yep. And all we need to do is remove, we keep the good bits, the bits that we've made our own, and we remove the bits that are impersonations that are superfluous, superfluous to our needs, and suddenly you're, you're in charge of your voice. And so that was a lot of what I do with actors, is, is find out what, they, what their influences, what their musical influences are, and so work from that point. She went on to, has gone on, of course, to do a number of musicals, yeah. after Miller and Rouge, with a Nine, and... Yeah, and, and whenever she, she does, I coach her. She, oh, she, right. she, she tends to ring me and say... Well, that's what you want from a singing teacher or, and in fact, or any sort of another, coach, don't you? Somebody that has that shorthand that you understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're, we're in... Dis- I mean, I got an email from her this morning, actually, because we're, we're talking about doing... She's doing um, The Prom. 
the Broadway musical. Oh, the, the film. They're doing Version. the film, yeah, which yeah, starts in, they start shooting in December, which is Nicole, um, Meryl Streep, James Corden, Ariana Grande, Andrew Reynolds. Can't remember who else. That's extraordinary. Because it's only just closed on Broadway. Yeah. Didn't so, really win any Tony Awards or anything, but but was a preset of I loved it. Much audience. It's actually one of the best. But it's gone. It's gone to uh, the, the silver screen quite quickly. Yeah, I think because they realised the potential in it. Right. Uh, it's Netflix are producing it. Right. Um, and Ryan Murphy's directing it. So they shoot in December and January. Um, so yeah. So we're we're sort of having trying to work out dates at the moment when I can do some work with her on that. But. Um, yeah, she's 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 a natural. I mean, uh, you know, people always. I I made Nick one promise when we made the film, which was, I will make sure that you sound, like that the film sounds like you look, because I said the worst you're gonna you know you know what it's like. People are gonna some people will like it, some people won't, um, and I want you to be able to go into the press junket and be able to say with your hand on your heart that it's your voice. Yep. So that was the one deal we made about about that, and um, I think we succeeded. Yeah. Um, making it sound like. You know, you don't want it to be another person's voice coming out of no. out of a body. Marnie Nixon's Marnie not Nixon, I know, I know no, that's no, right. No. <laughs> but but you want that that performer to be as confident as possible because there's any sort of flicker of doubt mm-hmm. that's going to read yep. hugely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So did you play in bands and, and all that sort of thing? Yeah, with, with never other? never too much. I did. I I didn't really enjoy. You had long hair for a while. Well, I did. Mm-hmm. It was it was very curly, curly and very and dark, and yeah. now there's not that much of it left, and it's grey. Yeah. So, uh, no, I didn't. I, pl- I played in a couple of bands, but not not anything that that went anywhere. It was really just filling in time. I did. I mean, I, I started my own cabaret company in Canberra when I was um, sixteen or seventeen, and we ended up being we did a show called War to War at Mario's Theatre Restaurant in. Canberra. So which, cabaret shows, you mean you've got a group of singers together? And, yeah, it was uh, me and two older uh, women who we, we'd been together in, in Superstar, I think, with Terry O'Connell. And we ended up putting a show together and pitching it and we got in there. And it ran for about 18 months and three nights a week. And it ran in a place called Mario's, which coincidentally was run by... A th- a cu- there were two owners, Tom and Nick, and I can't remember whether... But one of them was Van der Zandt, and it was Queenie Van der Zandt's father. Oh wow! So small world, small world. So we, so I had my own cabaret company. We did that show. Then we did another one, which was very successful there. Then I did a third one, which wasn't so successful. Um, just different themes. Yeah, just different songs themes. of the war years. Well, yeah, and then we did one called The Entertainers, I think, where Ken Healy, who was at that time the critic for the Canberra Times, he uh, went on to teach at NIDA. He went on to teach at NIDA and, and and reviews for. Uh, Sydney Morning Herald and stuff for the opera and he um, he his review of my version of Rhapsody in Blue when I was talking about George Gershwin was Andrew Ross starts prom- Rhapsody in Blue promisingly enough but does not continue very far with it <laughs> <laughs> have you spoken about that yes yeah I've reminded him frequently right. no but uh, so yeah I, I I didn't really do bands I went straight into a theatrical form so I went into cabaret and then I, and musicals um, did you have an appreciation of, of were you listening to uh, pop music, rock music? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was up? surrounded by, I mean, my, uh, all sorts of music. I mean, in my house. I mean, uh, oh, well, uh, again, re- religious music and... And my bro- older brother listened to Uriah Heep and Bob Dylan, so... Right. And Country we, and Western, get a look in? Oh, yes. Um, my sister was a big fan of, of um, what was his name? John Denver. Right. 
There's a lot of Rocky Mountain High going on. Right. And Tears Van Leer, for some reason, who right. was the flautist from... Um, I can't remember. He was a, one of those bands. And he came out with solo albums. Anyway, there was a lot of very strange a bit like influences. Kenny G, but with a flute. Yes. <laughs> it was sort of... It was sort of ja- almost jazz flute, but not quite. <laughs> but there were, yeah, there were a lot of musical influences. So I, I went straight into that. I also did drama at school. I had really good drama teachers, and I know you you are passionate about that. Yeah. And uh, um, I, 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 it would have been a very young subject, also at that point. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. When, when we were at school, because we were at the same age. Yeah. Are we? Yeah. I'm yeah. older than you. Yeah. Much I'm older. just turned forty. You're forty, aren't you? Mm, no, no, no. I wish. I'm, I'm How old do you older. think I am? I, I daren't say. No, you. People well, are say, listening. I'll People say. are listening. I'm 57 in a couple of weeks. Are you? Time. I'm yeah. 52. So there, there you, you go. go. Not far behind. Well, not far. And you're a grandfather. I'm a grandfather now. Yes. So that's uh, the great delight of my life at the moment. It is a delight. I mean, I'm at 57. You're entitled to be a grandfather. Yeah. 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 So and she so just started crawling last night. I've just got a video last night of her first crawling. So yes, I besotted. So and Barry and Barry and I talk about it a lot because he's just had he's has grandchildren already, but his two boys Oscar and Rupert now have young. He's got three new granddaughters and he's he's a, he's a he's a menace now. He'll go and talk to people with babies in prams. He never did that before. Do, is do you finding that changes you a little bit? Are you doing that sort of thing, or would you I, be inclined I've, to do that? Or you've always done it. I've always done it. I've, <laughs> I've always loved babies. I have to say, right. I've always been known as a bit of a baby whisperer. It's got nothing to do with show business. No, but they can... <laughs> My baby's crying. I, Hold it, Andrew. Yes, I could do that in rehearsal. That's probably what'll happen. That's where I'll end up. A baby I'll, whisperer. I'll end up running... When you leave NIDA yeah. one day... I'll end up running a creche right. for Gordon Frost or something. <laughs> <laughs> there are worse jobs. There are worse I suppose jobs. so. Yeah. I suppose so. Um, you're in the unique position of, of, you know, you're now teaching at NIDA, but you were a student there. I was. I went there. I auditioned on a whim in 1984. This is for acting, I guess. For the acting yep. course. And I got in. So I went along there, and I was in the same year as Richard Roxburgh. Richard and I knew each other a little bit from Canberra. But um, uh, we went, we were in the same year. He was a Canberra boy, wasn't he? he had, he'd spent some time at ANU, I think, a year at ANU or something like that. So I had a feeling he was Aubrey Wodonga. Yes, he was, that's yes. where he grew up. Yeah. But I think there was a year at ANU. Right. There was something we'd met, we'd met before. Um, but yeah, we were in the same year. Nick Enright was the head of acting. Um, um, towards the end of the first year, so Baz Luhrmann was in second year. He was in the year above us. And it was uh, one of, another one of those political times at NIDA where the students had an uprising against the running of NIDA. And it all became very, very political. And I just got sick of it. And I looked around. Uh, I, I'd also met my, my wife, Kerry, at that point. We're separated now, but, but we, we met and we were together for 26 years. So that was the beginning of that relationship as well. So I was sort of... NIDA, NIDA sort of lost part of its magic for me because I was sort of... Was she a student at NIDA? No, she was a student at um, Uni of New York. Oh, okay. So you were on the same campus. We'd met in Canberra. Okay. And then uh, she came back to Sydney. Right. And I happened to get into NIDA and moved into a house a street away from her by accident. So we ended up together. Um, But at the end of the first year, I decided to leave, uh, which Nick Enright took very personally and, and thought, you know, felt very much that he'd let me down for some reason, I don't know. Um, and I left 
uh, and went out into the to the big wide world to start work. And later on, I uh, went back to NIDA to be the musical director for the year I should have graduated in. When they got the third year, I did a show with Aubrey Mellor and Keith Bain with the third year so when I was musical director. Were you a good actor? I suppose you, yeah, you must have th- had pretty uh, much potential if you were accepted. I think I was a good actor. Um, and I've done a bit of it on and off. I did master class with, with, at the Sydney, with Robin Nevin and both, both Robin Nevin and Amanda Muggleton in um, the, the Terence McNally play. Which is a piano role, and it's not really a, there's not much to it. But but I am on stage for the entire play, and I enjoyed doing and, that. And you gave yourself a character rather than playing Andrew. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you speak with an accent? Or? <laughs> no, yeah, I was based funny. on a, based on a real person. So. All right, so you could do the research. And, yep, yeah, and yeah. Build so a he was it was it was based on a, the guy that was helping Maria Carlos try to get her voice back while she was doing the, the master classes at Juilliard. Um, so. That was that was a really interesting thing. Rodney Fisher directed that, so I've I've, I've sort of dabbled. You bit. talk about dear Nick Enright. Mm-hmm. Um, I can just imagine Nick sort of feeling disappointed that he'd let you down, or he was or such something. a sensitive soul in so many ways, wasn't he? Wasn't yeah, he? yeah, yeah. Because yeah. of course um, he wrote Mary Bright. Yes, yeah, where we yeah. went, yeah. and in fact uh, he was responsible for me doing the Venetian Twins with John Bell, because he was the one that said. I think you should do it. So he, he became a bit of a champion of mine after that. We ended up doing lots of things together. We, we did um, uh, the Tilbury together. Uh, we did a, a show there called Flings, Songs of Love, Lust and Desperation, which was me, uh, Nick and Deidre Rubenstein. Oh. And in fact, there's a photo of us, the book about, Anne Pender's book about Nick Enright uh, on, the back co- on the front cover is the photo of me, Nick and Deidre, me sitting at the piano and them... Sort of hovering above me, which Nick always said um, that it looked like a mother and father at their son's bar mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> so was he singing? Or yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Uh, look, that was a really interesting time because um, every night Nick, the playwright in him, just could not relax. And every night, as you know, in, in a cabaret particularly, you some nights are gold and some nights are now. What does Bob Dylan say? Some days are diamond, some days are stone, um, and. Nick would come off every night, over-analyzing every second that had worked and every second that hadn't worked yeah. and wanting to rewrite lyrics and things. And I had to say to him, Nick, it's just a cabaret. Not everything's going to land every night. So um, but he eventually he would, relaxed. He was like that, though. I think with every revival of one of his plays, mm-hmm. he went he back and he would re- continue to tinker with it yeah. and develop it. Or yeah, yeah. He, he, he couldn't relax. He was, he was a perfectionist, a relaxed perfectionist in a lot of ways, but a perfectionist. But a great mentor for, for so many oh, people. Oh, yes, yeah. so many. Yeah. So leaving night... Oh, and, and also we, we had a, a card group. So there was... Bridge? Uh, no, we used to play... I can't say what it was called because it's very rude. Um, but we used to also play 500. Um, and it was me, my wife Kerry, Nick Enright, David Berthold, Kate Champion and her partner Tony. And so we used to play cards every, Saturday, every second Saturday night or maybe every month for a long time, where we'd go to each other's places, cook dinner and play cards. Great. And in fact, the last time we played as that group was uh, only about two weeks before Nick died at his place. He cooked us dinner and we had, and he went into the, that was on the Saturday night. He cooked us dinner, we played 500 and he went to the hospital on the Monday and died two weeks later. Well, yeah, went downhill quite quickly. Yeah, and then after he left, Max Lambert took his seat and we continued to play for a, a good few months and then, then it, we all fractured and ended up in different parts of the country so it all yeah, stopped. But, this band. Mm. 
You uh, leave NIDA, you quickly find work uh, as a musical director, a singing coach, pianist, accompanist, an actor, writer, a jack of many trades. Mm. Was there one that you particularly enjoyed? I, I love vocal coaching. Um, it's one of my passions. Um, musical direction I really enjoy. I went, I, I went into the music staff of things like Miss Saigon in the first production, which... Which, doing the big musicals just wasn't for me. And was that playing, uh, being a pit pianist? And yeah, and, and so I ended up being like fourth conductor. So sort of uh, once the, everybody else had trained up, I, I conducted a few shows of it. I actually learnt conducting on uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat with um, oh. Tina Arena. So that was the first show I conducted. And David Dixon. And David Dixon. And Michael Cormick. And Michael Cormick. That's right. I'll see if I can name any more. I don't think I can. Uh, Paul Hanlon. Paul Hanlon was in the uh, um, one of the brothers. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, it was. It was. So I, I was only on that for a few months. I went on. I think um, really useful sort of paid for me to go on as a trainee conductor. And so I worked. Michael Tyke was conducting, and Robert Purvis from England was out as the assistant. So I sort of learnt from both of them, and then ended up con- conducting probably half a dozen shows all up. I suppose. So what was it you didn't enjoy about those big musicals? Was it just the pressure to deliver every night? It was or, the, I'm sure the, mechanical na- the mechanical nature of it. Oh, okay. So, I mean, you know, it, yeah. it, look, every, you know our, our job in the, in the arts is to recreate. Um, but in, a, in something that's not as formulaic as those big musicals, you, you have a little more scope to, to be a little more fluid with things depending on what's happening and reading the room and reading the cast and reading the pit. Um, but in the bigger ones, you, just, you don't have that luxury because if it's not the same, a lot of people get very upset. Yeah. So uh, it took part of the creativity away for me. Um, and I, rather than that, I, I enjoyed... Well, really, I just wanted to work with you on Mary Bryant, so that was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, so is that sort of... You left that I, sort of to go and do Mary? I, I thought... I just asked people where Peter Ives was going to be working oh, next. Come on, you're pissing on now. <laughs> Um, hey, do you want to top up? No, no, no I'm fine, thank you. I think I, I think you can tell I'm fine. It's been a long day. Yeah, uh, you're a accompanist, of course, for many of our great artists, mm. Nancy Hayes and Geraldine Turner and Tony Lemon, Judy Canelli, Simon Burke. The list goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. What does it take to be a good accompanist? Uh, listening not to their singing, but to their breathing. Right. Okay. That's um, interesting. Because if I'm listening to, and then look, uh, to be honest, the the. The, the, the huge master class that I learnt that in after learning from all those other great people was working with Barry Humphreys and I've been with him for nearly 30 years now yeah, you, you have to be ready to land when they land yeah. and if you're listening to their voice and their singing you're not actually going to land with them you have to listen to the breath so that you know you can hear that intake of breath or sense even, even if you can't hear it sometimes you have to watch for it or feel it or sense it or intuit it um, and it's just listening and, and breathing with, you know, any great conductor will breathe with the singers and with the, with the orchestra to, to find the space within the music. And I think that's, that's sort of the greatest thing. To be a good accompanist, you need to, to be listening to the breath. Um, who, are, who would you say, uh, oh, no, this can be a, we can go talk forever about uh, and the answer to this question, but who are some of your great teachers? Now, that might be from right back from Canberra, Amateur Theatre, mm-hmm. it might be NIDA, it might be just in life. Yeah. Who, who are the people that have been great mentors and guided oh. you from time to time? Um, John Bell, when yep. we did Venetian Twins, I learned a lot about the, the importance of even in a, in a piece like the Venetian Twins, which is 
a comedy which is broad, could be considered broad, um, but it, the detail. It's, a, it's about all of the details that go into that stuff, and that's how you... That's why I love working with actors rather than singers yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and a joke just isn't funny. It requires a lot of structure and... and absolutely. And, 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 and blocking and yeah. timing and... Look, breathing. and I think, I think all of the, the... The thing about the career I've had uh, and continue to have is that, that it's, it's, it is quite varied and that none of those can be compartmentalised. None of the skills that I use in any of the, my, any of the jobs that I take can be compartmentalised. I use a bit of everything in everything. Um, uh, talking about you know writing comedy with Barry and and you know we've been writing together for a long time now. But but that is very much a skill. And about we've just spent today. I've been rehearsing. We've been writing all day today, getting ready for the new show. And and we wrote in January. We then wrote again in London a few weeks ago. And, and now he's arrived here and we've started work. The refinement that goes into that writing, to, to the, and every day we will change a word or the order of a word. Um, actually, the, there was one really interesting thing that happened when we did the, the show on Broadway in 1999. There was a line that we'd used for a long time in Australia, which was, um, the, Edna used to go and visit her daughter Valme and her Valme's partner Fern Bratislava and they used to breed pit bull terriers white pit bull terriers and Edna used to walk say oh the, the place I walked in and the place was covered with dog, white dog hair you drop a chocolate cake and you pick up a lamington <laughs> and so again when we got to America trying to make that joke work you know not knowing what a lamington was you know we had to do all that but but there were so many instances of it where we had five weeks of previews on Broadway um, before we opened, rather than doing out of town, and within the first the first few nights, it was a, it was a, again like Nick Barry was sort of starting to tear his hair out, going, I don't, "That's a surefire laugh. Why aren't people laughing?" I said, "Can we just just let me watch again for a couple of nights?" So because I was sitting on stage, so I could not only listen to the response, but I could watch the response. I could see the body language. I could see how they were receiving things. And I said to him, a couple of nights later, I said, "Okay, I think I figured it out." It's just the syntax is different. So if we swap the noun and the verb on this line and put the noun at the end, rather than the beginning, whereas the Australians here find it funny to, say, for example, they find it funnier to hear the object and then what happened to it. But over here, they like to hear what happened to the object. So sometimes it's as simple as... Wow, it's the craft of all the of language, that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's just the way people hear things. Um, and I think from Barry, from John Bell, from those sorts of people, it's the detail. It's the detail that makes all of those things work. It's like, um, I remember I was listening to one of your podcasts, the one with Jonathan Biggins, and talking about lyric writing. Yep. And, and I found that fascinating and with and about Phil Scott and, and, and the way they would write lyrics and meter and all of that. I mean, one of the things that Barry and I do when we're writing lyrics is, um, you know, he's a good friend of Stephen sometimes, so he, he always says, mm, Steve wouldn't like that, or Steve would be very proud of us. So I think with all of those... Uh, great people who have a, a huge amount of knowledge. There's a respect to tradition, and it's like we're talking, hearing Phil Scott was talk, talking about um, Gilbert and Sullivan, for example. Yeah, and it is. It's it's learning from the the mistakes that have been made in the past, but more importantly from the successes, and capitalising and building on those. So working with somebody like Barry is a gift. You know, never get tired of that. You've just about to celebrate ten years at NIDA. Yes. Did you go in, well, you went as head of music? Well, I'd been on and off. You know, I'd been, I went in as a student, 
went in as a musical director in 1986, seven, six, um, went back for three years. Uh, I taught there part-time a little bit, then I went and taught full-time for three years. So Kate Blanchett's here. I, she, for that her period of time, I was the head of music there then. Then I got out, went and did lots of other stuff for 20 years. Um, not quite 20. Oh, yeah, it would have been 20 years. And then the this iteration of my time at NIDA came when I'd just finished an American tour with Barry. And I'd been on the road so much for so many years. We'd done a lot of international touring. Um, I just wanted to be home. And uh, it, it coincided with that job coming up. So I applied and I got it and... Um, and have just renewed my contract. I've, I think I've really enjoyed knowing when my holidays are, knowing um, that I could pay my bills. Uh, all, all that security, you know, has been has been really nice. Although at the moment, as as I say, it's I'm up to ten years in January, and I'm still contracted there. But I, st- I do start going. What else is there? What what else do I want to do? You know, being aware that I'm getting older and, and may not have the interest in doing that. What are the things I want to do? I mean, I, you know, I lived in New York for a while doing the show on Broadway and I'd always thought I would ultimately go back and do yep. some more work. Yep. I went back a couple of years ago to see some shows and see friends and thought, I couldn't live here now, I'm too old. Really? It's too yeah. exhausting. Yeah. Then I went back a few months ago to see some friends and see some shows and felt reinvigorated and thought, oh, maybe I should come back. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I, I'm one of those very lucky people. My mother always used to say that I always fell on my feet. I've never done anything except show business since I was 16. I've never pulled a beer or made a coffee. Uh, it's just never... I've never had to. I've, I've been very, very fortunate. Wow. Um, and I think it's probably because, um, because of my varied interests and my varied abilities... I don't just sort of go, I'm one thing. I, yeah, I there's many to. strings on your bow. I'm a shapeshifter. You are a shapeshifter. Um, why is music important to an actor training? Uh, it's a very good question. It's one of the things that we pride ourselves on at NIDA and, and the other acting staff that I work with are very proud of the fact that we've incorporated music into the training in a way that most other institutions don't do, which is that it's very present right from the beginning of the course and a very much part of the It's not training. just a it's not an adult, course or no, experience. And it's, and it's yeah. not just a, a music class. It's actually, we, we uh, I very much believe that, that cadence, musicality, tone, pitch, they're all part of not only a vocal uh, experience, as in a spoken vocal experience and a sung vocal experience, but they're also part of a physical experience. You know, those things inhabit, again, it's that detail um, that I was talking about. You need to, you need to cross-reference um, all, of the, all of the arts, really. Um, all of that information is invaluable to creating something other than yourself. Um, I think you need to have all of those, all of those skills, all of those antenna have to be up um, and and transmitting and receiving um, to to make something that's worth watching, really, for an audience. It needs to be it needs to be heightened. It's one of those things that we battle against at the moment with actor training, is that the tendency is for, because the world is very small 
for a lot of a lot of the younger people these days. Yeah. Um, that the through technology through technology yeah, and looking yeah. at a device and yeah. it's one of those interesting things. Philip Quast comes and does a lot of teaching for me, and Philip and I were talking about in the auditions. You hear people breaking up, you know, what we what we call chopping up the text into little bite-sized people pieces that don't make much sense. So they'll they'll say, well, maybe one day you should. And, we, and Philip said, you know what it is, of course. It's their, it's their brains are used to texting. So they're going, right. so one day, and their, their thumbs yep. are moving. You can almost see their thumbs moving in time with their speech. So Philip is always saying to them, stop using your typewriter, stop, uh, your typewriter, stop using your computer, stop using a keyboard, get out a pen and write. Yes. That's what gives you that flow, the that flow continuity. in language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very important, I think. The musicality, I emphasize that a lot. And we talk about that in... We try to, um, in rehearsals or in our assessments of people's cl- classwork and performance work in classrooms, is always have a musical input into the feedback about how things were going and how they can incorporate music uh, into into their work. And in third year, I think the actors specialise, don't they, in music or acting? Is that still the case? No, that, so what we're doing is we're starting a new course. Right. Uh, a few years ago, we had uh, a music theatre stream. So right. there was, was NIDA wanted to start a music theatre course, and I said, this, this coincided with me starting the position. I said, look, I don't think we should do a music theatre course because Whopper does one really well, and VCA has one, and Griffith has you one. You want to be a point of difference. I want to be a point yeah. of difference. So I said, what we need to do is look at... Um, uh, Actors, because there are all some people, some actors who have a great musical skill don't want to do musical theatre, yeah, because they're not interested in musicals. I mean, you can imagine somebody like a Paul Capsis, yeah, he does, he can do a musical, but it's not really who he is. No. He's more an actor, yeah, who has a musical strength. Same with Philip Quast. I mean, Philip is an actor, yes, who discovered he could, as an actor, yeah. and who discovered he can sing, yeah. And so I said, I think we should be looking at those actors that have a, a musical skill that we can take in and then we can find a way to support the skills that they've arrived with and accelerate them in some way, but not say, oh, you, if you want to do musicals, you need to go and do a musical theatre course, which involves dancing, singing and some acting. Now, the course that we are bringing in again, which is starts in 2020, is um, going to be called The Singing Actor. They will be part of the 24 that we take into the acting course they have to get through act the first round just on acting. They don't get to open their mouths to sing until the second round, until the recalls. And at that point, they'll have a separate recall day where they'll do everything that they we do with the actors, but we'll also interrogate the ability to act through song. Because I'm, I'm a big believer that music is sometimes the door for the door in for an actor. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they don't know it. Sometimes they've been told throughout their life that they're not a singer or they're not musical. Um, and that whole part of them shuts down. But once you reawaken it, it can actually be the solution and the way in to acting for, for people, for some people. And it's quite legitimate to be a very good double threat. Absolutely. Than, than the triple threat that well, everybody always wants to see, celebrate. I actually think the triple threat is outmoded. Yeah. Because if you look at it, unless it's a dance musical... You're talking about the shows that are being written now? Or? Oh, well, ju- just in general. Right. I don't think that... I think the triple threat thing has been overemphasised. Because if you look at it, unless it's a dance musical... The lead actors don't dance. No. The ensemble dance around them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ask Philip Quast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think it's a really important difference to make. Uh, that, that you, what, 
and what the industry and people like Roger Hodgman and Kelly Dickerson and people were responding to when I did the music theatre stream was they were saying, this is amazing, you're turning out great people who are really terrific actors who can really sing and, and perform through song. In fact, for our first intake of that stream, the six, of the six that we took in, three didn't get through the first round audition for Whopper because they, their dancing wasn't good enough. Right. But their acting was terrific. Yep. And they were good singers. So it's just a different thing. And, I, and, and I'm, you know, I'm David King and Crispin uh, over at Whopper, I, I know and respect them. And, and uh, it's just different. You know, we're not, I don't think we should be in competition. I think there's enough um, opportunities for people who want to do the triple threat type training, which yeah. I consider to be singing, dancing with some acting. Um, and it's perfectly viable to, for people to come out of those courses and work their way up through the chorus to lead roles. Yeah. I happen to think that the industry needs better actors who can sing and, go, and step into lead roles yeah. um, without spending years in the chorus. And I guess there's an element of teaching creativity also and being able to produce one's own work or very much develop one's own work. Very much. I, I, I think... Um, I mean, you look at performers like... I mean, I know they come out of uh, Whopper, but Eddie Perfect and Meow Meow, mm-hmm. um, those performers who, yeah, have crafted this whole industry work for themselves. Absolutely. Just on... And I think every every artist needs to do have a very firm eye on how to create their own work. And I think there are always going to be those, the, the Melissa Madden Grays and the, and the Eddie Perfects and the Paul Capsis who, who have a, a very firm on eye, eye on what they think they have to offer and also have a, a bravery about what they will do and what they won't do. And if they see a gap in the market, and it's not even a gap in the market, it's actually a drive in themselves about the sort of work that they want to do. I think you'll find that when in all sorts of people, whether it's acting, whether it's singing, whether it's dancing, you know, um, I, I, th- I don't think I don't think that comes from a particular part, of, a particular training, or a particular way of doing uh, of, of, of teaching the work. Or I, th- I think it's, it, that's a self drive. That's a self drive, and they're the sort of things you either have or you don't. Really, yeah. you can give people the skills to execute those things, but you can't teach them the drive. No. That's got to be, that's got to be part of the DNA. When did you first meet Barry Humphreys? Um, it was nineteen ninety two, I think, something somewhere around then. It was one of those nights in the old days when we had answering machines, and uh, I was sitting at home and the phone rang and I was deeply engrossed in I don't know LA law or something, and uh, the voice on the other end said, "Oh." Hi Andrew, it's um, it's Sue Farrelly here. We're just looking for a new musical director for Barry Humphreys. So I very quickly picked up the phone as as if I was heading to it anyway, and uh, I said, "Sure, sure." So we talked, and she said, "Look, uh, can you send a recording of you playing and singing to Barry he, uh, to us, and we'll send it to Barry. He's over in I think he was filming Immortal Beloved in um, Poland or something." And then we came out. He came out to Australia, and we met for lunch. Uh, he was staying at the Sheraton on the. I oh know. I think we just had lunch at the Sheraton on the park, 
And so I arrived and met him. And before we started lunch, he said, look, can you come up? I've got a, there's a rehearsal room up, so a banquet room and there's a piano. Could you come up? We just got a song that they've sent over for Les Patterson. Um, could you come up and we'll just have a quick look at it? So I went up knowing that this was probably my audition. Um, so we went into the room and we started this song and, and within about eight bars, I stopped him and I said, you know what? I think it would be better if you did such and such. And he immediately looked at me and went, I think, I think we should go down and have lunch. So I think audition be, over. I audition over. I think because I'd offered an opinion, um, and it wasn't it wasn't calculated. It was just my instinct as we were started working together, even at that very early stage, was that this could be better. And so he he obviously reacted positively to that. It could have gone either way. It wasn't calculated, as I say, but it, he immediately thought he was that I was somebody he could work with. This is one of our iconic performers in Australia. Mm. Going over to that that meeting, how did you feel? Uh, Very excited. I'd been a fan from when I was a bit anxious or nervous. I don't Uh, think so. I can't quite remember. I mean, we've been together so long now that, and we're so close. We are we are honestly very very close close friends. um, That I don't remember being anxious or nervous. I think it was just excitement. I mean, look, that's one of those things that I always tell actors anyway you know when they say I say how are you before an opening night and they say oh, I'm really nervous I go no you're not you're excited you just have to recontextualize it yeah, yeah. Um, so I think excited I think I was excited more than anything else it's been a long association mm. starting off as a companist and then um, when did he take you on as a, a co-collaborator um, it, it was a natural sort of process um, we I suppose it just became a trust thing over years of me being on stage with him. So it's very rare that he has somebody who's seeing exactly what he sees and experiences exactly what he experiences. So things when, when things go a little awry or things don't quite work or you have one of those nights where it's he's not feeling as funny as he may have the night before and he would just sort of say, what do you think happened there? Um, and we would talk about it and I think over the time I just became braver about proffering an opinion and uh, eventually we, he asked me to write with him. And so we started writing. And then it turned, out the, it turned out that I ended up writing sort of slabs of material for, for all of the characters, for Edna, Les and Sandy in particular. Because Barry was often out of the country, so he was not really up with what was going on in Australia. So I would write stuff and then explain to him what, what it was. And then, of course, Barry would... Edna eyes it or Les, Les eyes it or Sandy eyes it. Um, and that's where the magic happens. So I'm not claiming to be the person that writes all of that stuff. I mean, but but a lot of the ideas we we would have together or I would have in isolation and say, this is, this is perhaps a, a road we can go down. Later on, when we really formalised that relationship and I started being credited as, as, a, as a writing additional material, was when I started to explain to him how he wrote which was an interesting thing. I said, okay, so when you're talking to women in the audience, when Edna's talking to people, she'll often say, uh, you'll ask a question knowing that one of two or three responses is going to come back and you've got an answer for all of those. Um, So I said, what we're going to do is we're going to write that way. We're going to write the questions that we want to ask an audience and hopefully direct them towards the answer that we want. So, So it became a bit of a... Um, a craft but Barry had always written written like that he just didn't know that that's what he did so I think it was because of the closeness of our working relationship I was able to untangle or observe what he did and explain it to him did you ever think that you'd play Broadway yourself 
I'd who, always hope who, they would. I think everybody does. Everybody don't they? hopes, don't they? But then when it actually happens, when it happens, I mean, I always say, people, when I came back from that experience, and of course, you know, working on Broadway is great, but it's pressure. It's a lot of pressure to deliver. Well, yes, because yeah. you've got so many producers, and they're all in the dressing room. You know, we did five weeks of previews. Now, we didn't know how it was going to go. Barry had been in there in the seventies and had failed miserably, so he was very nervous. So why five weeks preview? Was that was just to refine the show and get it yeah, right? Yeah, because rather than do an out-of-town tryout, it was decided okay. that we'd do we'd open and we'd do five weeks of previews. Now, luckily, within three days, we were selling standing room only because we'd sold out and it ended up running for 10 months. But at that point, by the time we opened, we were, we were well and truly ready. But every night, you would have the producers coming into the dressing room and it was literally the finger in the chest stuff. You've got to change this and you've got to do this and that's got to change and that's got to change. And everybody has an opinion because it's their money and you have to listen. doesn't mean you have to do it, but you know, it's, it, it, it's a very high pressure situation to be in. Um, but I, when I came back, um, people would say, what's it like working on Broadway? And I'd say, well, it's, it's like working at Marion Street with more money. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it, it, because the, yeah. The, the, the difficulties that you have to overcome are exactly the same. Right. It's the same, it's, it's getting a show right. Is getting a show right is getting a show right. Doesn't matter how much money is involved. Yeah. So yeah, it's it, it's a it's an interesting, interesting and difficult and pressurized area to be in, but but very fulfilling when you get it right. I can't I, imagine what it would have been like if we'd had a real failure. That would have been crushing. If you fail on Broadway, I think it's crushing because you sort of build up. You have the image in your head, yeah. don't you, of, of yeah. what what of success. Playing in that city to such success and being the focal point of a lot of people wanting to see Edna in action, I, I guess you're exposed to a lot of celebrities and meeting a lot of high-profile people. Yeah. Tell me about dinner at Mr. Sundheim's house. Oh yes, that was a, that was a, that was a night. Um, so we went to Barry and Steve Sondheim know each other quite well, very well. And so so Sondheim's obviously a fan of many years. Or yeah, yeah, and I th- I, I'm not sure how they met first, but uh, they've been friends for a long, long time. Probably, and Barry went over in the 60s to do Oliver yeah. on Broadway, He uh, to do Fagin. Mr. Salbury. Oh, no, Fagin, he actually did, did Fagin right. as well. Um, after he, because he, yeah, he'd understudied Fagin, Ron Moody in London, and then was taken over to do the um, the tour, and uh, the, the, the Broadway version in, yeah, it must have been the late 60s, early 70s. So I think they probably met then. Uh, but yes, I went to dinner at Stephen Sondheim's place. It was the first dinner party Stephen had after his house had nearly burnt down. All oh, right. Okay. So his house had nearly burnt down because he had a rug over a cable from his lamp, from a standard lamp, which had burst into flames and uh, destroyed almost everything um, except all of the scores and the, the original music. Why? Were they in some sort of fireproof They were upstairs. All oh, right, okay. Didn't um, get that far. N- yeah, it didn't get that far. So uh, anyway, he, the, it was the first dinner party that it had. So I was seated between Hal Prince and Carol Burnett. I, <laughs> I didn't say much. Um, so there was, there was only eight of us, I think, uh, including Stephen's architect, um, Judy and Hal Prince, Peter Stone, the... Um, the arranger? Uh, no, the, uh, no, the no. Um, screenwriter. Oh, okay. Uh, he was there. I think of Peter Howard. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was quite a night. I mean, they were all sort of outdoing each other with stories. I just I just sat there and stared blankly, really. Um, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Wonderful night. 
Um, actually, I just remembered a story too of the first time I worked with Barry. Um, we rehearsed, and then we went to Adelaide to open. And people had told me, they'd said, oh, you know, when Barry's in character, you have to speak to him in character. Now, that may have been true. Oh, that was one of my questions, actually. Oh, I didn't want you to spoil the magic or the illusion or whatever, but, but this is great. Tell, tell us. And, and so I, we got, and we'd been in the rehearsal room in Sydney, and just him and I, and uh, it had all gone very well. But then we got to, and, and Barry doesn't dress up for anything until the final dress rehearsal, basically. So we did the final dress rehearsal, and he'd done Les and Sandy in the first act. And then he went downstairs to get changed, and I was dealing with the band that I had at the time and, and trying to get things right. And Barry came back up. We were in the, the Madge in Adelaide. He came up the stairs dressed as Edna, and I had to ask him a question had, uh, about something musical that we were about to do. And so I thought, oh, God, here goes. I've got to go over and talk to Edna. So I went over and I said... Um, excuse me, Dame Edna. And, uh, and Barry leant very, very close to my ear and he went, Andrew, it's me in here. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, that was, I think, any, any anxiety I had about working with him um, fell away at that point. And, very quickly. And, and, yeah. and, and we've never had a crossword in the, the entire time we've worked together. We've come close, but we've never had a crossword. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Um, New York, that, that tradition of, of uh, high-profile people coming backstage. Oh, yes. We don't see here, but it happens a lot in New York theatres. Mm. Who are some of the folk that sort of wanted were, to come there back? There's some very bizarre ones. I mean, you know, the, the yeah, usual. Yeah, good. You know, Liza Minnelli and Billy Stritch and all those sorts of people. I mean, opening night was quite extraordinary because I could not take my eyes off Isabella Rossellini, who was sitting in the seat in the front row right in front of me. She was so beautiful even more beautiful than I'd ever imagined she could possibly well, that's be. Right. I suppose you've got quite a vantage point sitting at the oh. piano. You can see out and who is in the audience. Who's Actually, there? Um, there was uh, on opening night, there was... Uh, uh, maybe it wasn't opening night, maybe it was the next night. Uh, Jane Krakowski was sitting in the third row in front of me and she was having the best time anybody has ever had in the theatre from where I was sitting. And so I could not take my eyes off her and I was just watching her laugh and... And uh, the next day, a bunch of flowers arrived at the stage door for me. And they were from the man sitting behind her who thought I'd been giving him the eye all night. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. So, yeah, I was completely oblivious to that. But apparently I was... mm. Uh, Who else? Uh, Look, bizarre things happened. Um, The Bee Gees, Barry and... All three of them, I think. Barry, Robin and Morris all came together, but they refused to come and take their seats until the house lights went down. So I had to be ushered in. Um, I, I arrived. That's odd behaviour. Yes, it was odd. I, I make no comment. I just it's obviously bigger in the New York than they are in Sydney. Well, I think that would be. They think they thought they would be bigger in New York than they were in Sydney. Um, uh, I arrived in my dressing room to find Rod Steiger sitting in there one night because he was a very nervous character and he was coming to see the show and again a friend of Barry's, but didn't want to be downstairs so he they'd said he could sit in my dressing room so that was interesting having a chat to Rod Steiger Um, very surreal 10 months it was a very surreal 10 months Uh, also I can't remember her name unfortunately but the the designer of the original production of Cabaret died while while our show was on we were in the um, in the booth theater and uh, so they had the memorial memorial for her Florence Cotts was it 
oh, I don't know. You're, see, you're good. Uh-huh. You are good. <laughs> um, I'd have to find a friend to be sure. Right. But, oh, I'm just well, there you go. But I arrived, uh, and it was in the afternoon. I, but I had left something in the dressing room and had to go in, and Bernadette Peters was using my dressing room. So that was interesting. I'm going to have to get the vacuum her. cleaner out when you leave and <laughs> suck up all those names. I know, well, but, but it was like that. It was, yeah. it was just constant, constant. Every night was a, a bit of a party. What about some of the supporting characters? I'm thinking of um, lovely Emily, who played Madge. Emily Perry. Such a, a vital part of that um, comic relationship. Yeah, Emily was an amazing human being. She Emily died, Perry. Emily Perry, yeah. yeah. She died uh, at the age of just over 100, nearly 101. Wow. Um, she. So how old was she when she was touring with... Oh, well, I she must have been in the 80s, was she? Yeah, she was. Right. We toured. We did a world tour together, as well as a couple of Australian tours, but we did a world tour... And on the first world tour, we're going through Europe every... And we were doing pretty well one-night stands. We'd arrive in a city, clear customs, because it was not a European Union. It was... They're all separate countries. So we would arrive, clear customs, uh, get in a car, go to the theatre, do a sound check, go to the hotel, drop off the bags, go back to the theatre, do a show, go back to the hotel, have a drink, go to bed, get up the next morning and do it all again. They were pretty well one night stands, and um, because Barry wasn't known that well that much, so it wasn't like long seasons. And in every hotel, we'd all take turns at looking after Emily because Emily would go back and order a scotch on room service, just one. But when she'd check out in the morning, she'd want to pay for her scotch, so she'd empty out her coin purse onto the desk, and it would have. All coins from different, different countries. countries. You have Kroner and all sorts of things, <laughs> Deutschmarks. And one day, and I have to admit, I was a little hungover and it was my turn to look after Emily. Um, she said, Andrew, can you help me? I need to pay for my scotch. And I said, Emily, look, when we get on the plane, why don't you give all this, all the coins away to put them in the UNICEF, UNICEF envelope? Because you can't change coins when you go back to London. And she looked at me and she said, but I might want to come back to these countries one day. <laughs> and I couldn't argue. I said, well, all right, let's do it. Um, she was an amazing woman. She. Um, so where did she come from? She's obviously an actress. In a- yeah, so the, uh, she... Barry had had two actresses who'd played versions of Madge, that, who were speaking versions of Madge. And the last one... Um, Maureen Orr? No, not Maureen Orr. Somebody Orr. Uh, died of cancer, I think, in the s- late 70s. And so there wasn't a Madge. And that was the time when a- Madge used to appear on the talk shows wrapped in bandages. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. That's when they didn't have a Madge. So right. they auditioned people. They auditioned women. And as Barry says, you know, a lot of them came along and they were very camp and doing too much. And uh, he basically said to Emily, okay, you just, I just don't want you to react to anything I do. And he was merciless. And she did not react at all. So she got the job. She'd done, uh, she used to be a ballerina. Uh, she had uh, ran a dance school. She fell in love when she was 17, 16 maybe. And her the boyfriend was 17 or 18. He went away to the war and was killed. He was, uh, a, he was a pilot. She never fell in love again. Never really? stayed single for the rest of her life. Wow. Ran a ballet school, did some acting in, in TV shows and things. And then late in life, got the call. And... Uh, was you know befriended by royalty and travelled the world and she was a wonderful woman. Later on, she she ended up in a nursing home. She lost her memory, and uh, very sadly, 
would say, um, I know I worked with Barry Humphreys, but I can't remember a bit of it. Wow. Um, and then she died when she was 100. Barry looked after Barry was very good and looked after her um, and visited her very often um, right up until the day she died. That's beautiful. That's lovely to hear. Now, now you're um, taking on the uh, the helm for this next... Mm-hmm. Didn't he retire? Yes. Well, Dame Edna did retire. And then uh, last year, uh, in 2018, we did... Um, Barry did a show. We did a show of which we toured together of Barry talking about his life, um, which went well. Because Edna had retired in 2012, I think. I, remember, oh, I read an retired. article in The New Yorker. Yeah. Um, Don't believe everything you read. Right, okay. Well, it's like John Farnham, I suppose, isn't it? Or David Williamson writing his last play. That's exactly, exactly <laughs> like that. Um, no, uh, Edna had been away and was not planning to come back. She'd been away doing humanitarian works around the world. Um, she'd been doing all sorts of things looking after the depraved <laughs> and uh, but she heard she got wind that Barry Humphreys had been around doing a glorified lecture tour about his life and work and yet again claiming to be her so she could not stay silent no no so she's um, coming back to uh, refute all of those claims so Barry's 84 does that mean Edna's 84 I don't know I've never been in the, I, I know both of them quite right. well yeah. <laughs> But I try to avoid conversations that... You never ask a lady her, no, her age. No, 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 no. I know, I know that Edna's mother's about 120 right. and still alive. Okay, so we'll work, we'll work it out from we'll there. We'll work it out, yeah. But no, look, they, it's, a, it's a fraught relationship between Barry and Edna. So Edna Everidge, My Glamorous Life is, mm-hmm. is the show. My Gorgeous Life. My Gorgeous Life, mm-hmm. which is based on her autobiography, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so there's a, the first half of the show is very much Edna taking you historically through her her life um, uh, and the second act um, is very much a retrospective of the great talk show moments and all that sort of stuff so there's a lot of a lot of really wonderful memories Brilliant. to be shared um, that's that's the plan but I don't know how well I'll be able to control her yeah she's um, formidable I believe is the word I would use is this the first time that you've directed one of the shows yeah yeah. yeah, so... Um, it's, yeah, so director, writer, musical and director. Musical director and playing on stage. Yeah, so it's, right. it's, a, it's a busy... Do you get full salary? I wish. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm doing it for the usual love. Love, yeah, great. Mm. great. No, I mean, look, it, it is one of those things. There are very few people in this world that, that I think anybody would, would go back and back and back for and do anything for but Barry Humphreys is one of those people well that term national treasure is used so often um, and sometimes incorrectly but but he is he's he's, one he's of extraordinary our, our he is extraordinary I mean you know we we laugh so much when we're working together and just today we were actually in in my music room at night doing some work and and the inventiveness and the playfulness that he still possesses at 84 I mean I can't think of it most people that I know who are 84 would be on their best day incapable of uh, of the energy that he still has. Yeah. Yeah, he's slowed down a bit. Yeah, he's older. Who yeah. hasn't? Who hasn't? Yeah. But he is he is still extraordinary. Um, but I think, yeah, I th- look, I would encourage people to, uh, if this goes to air, as they say, before the tour. Oh, it will. So, um, so you're playing every state? Yeah, we're doing... Oh, well, we're doing, we're doing... No, we're doing... We're doing, only doing a few nights in each city. Right. We're doing... We open in Canberra. We're doing three nights, I think, in the Canberra Theatre. Then we come to the Darling Harbour Theatre for a couple of nights. 
We do Brisbane for a couple of nights. We do Melbourne for more than a couple of nights because, of course, it's very popular down there. We're in the State Theatre down there. Adelaide, Geelong, Perth, Newcastle. An odd collection. Uh, some of it came down to availability of theatres. Yeah. Um, because we're only wanting short uh, stops. Um, but look, it, it, it's going to be... It's going to be pretty special, I think. Yeah. yeah. Great. How exciting to talk to you, Mr. Ross. Um, Thank you. It's, it's been really lovely. Thank you for uh, all your insights and uh, pleasure. the experiences that you've shared. Thank uh, you for the, the glass of red wine. It's been we'll, most... We'll have, we'll have another one now. Oh, excellent. I think, yeah, excellent. All right. Thank you, lovely. Thanks Thank for talking you. to the stages. Thank you. Andrew Ross, Barry Humphreys and Dame Edna Everidge will be touring Australia in September, October and December. Dame Edna, My Gorgeous Life opens on Tuesday, September 17th at the Canberra Theatre Centre with dates following in Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, Geelong, Newcastle, Melbourne, Perth and finishing with a return season in Sydney at the Coliseum Theatre. Check out tour dates at tegdainty.com. Now, I know I go on about it, but have you rated and reviewed the Stages podcast yet? Don't tell me it slipped your mind. It's easy. Just go to the podcast directory in iTunes, probably where you've accessed this episode. Scroll to the bottom and you'll see a section titled Ratings and Reviews. Tap to rate via the stars. Hopefully you'll hit five. And then follow up with a few choice words or phrases by tapping on the section Write a Review. Your support here will help to give the podcast broader exposure and lift us in the ratings. Now, go see Dave Edna, wave at Andrew, and have the experience garnished by listening to this gorgeous episode. As always, I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to Stages. Stages.